Tom is continuing his series through 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 15 today. I'll be reading from verses 35 through 58. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Heavenly Father, these are very powerful, important words. Thank you that because of the Lord Jesus, on that day when we die, that you return, we will be raised with you imperishable. Our dear sister Charlene now knows this very well. We will be with you for all eternity, worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning.
being in this passage this particular week <laughs> and, and uh, pondering in Charlene's homegoing and praying for our brother. Uh, it's been emotional for me. Every time I come back to this passage, it's emotional again, so you guys may have to bear with me a little bit. <laughs> um, what happens when, when you die? What happens when you die? We'd be hard-pressed to come up with any one question that has pervaded the consciousness of mankind throughout the ages of human history uh, more than that particular question has. The one who actually created mankind and everything else uh, already answered that question in his word. His answer does not tell us every detail that we might want to know, but it tells us with great clarity what we need to know. The God who sees all things from, uh, from an eternal point of view, who recognizes that this, this earthly life that we live is like a subatomic dot at the beginning of an eternal line, and he sees that dot as just, a, just stage setting, and he sees eternity as that which which makes sense of, of all that he has done. The God who created mankind recognizes and declares to us uh, that, that being absent from the body and at home with the Lord, as Paul said it would happen if he passed from this earth in 2 Corinthians 5, that that's not the end point. That's not the goal. That's not the fulfillment of God's design for, the, for restoring Eden on steroids. Now, if we saw as God sees, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that we'd be a lot less focused on what comes between our, between our physical death and our eternal state. But a lot of what we wrangle about and wrestle with is that, that little, that interval there. I don't know how long it lasts. Um, but Paul is talking about the end point. And we have to come to this passage recognizing that. And it, this is what we need to know, guys. This is what we need to know. Uh, writing on God's behalf, Paul focuses on the prize. He focuses on the glorious, everlasting end point of God's intention for the souls and the bodies of those that he has redeemed for himself. The answer Paul gives us in this magnificent passage does not apply to all mankind. In fact, it does not apply to most of mankind. In Matthew 7:14, Jesus said, "The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it." In our passage this morning, God gives us God, Paul gives us God's answer to one very focused question. What will become of the bodies of those who, who die having believed, trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul laid out for us at the beginning of this chapter? The answer is very, very good news. <laughs> it is astonishing news. Paul begins verse 35 by saying, but someone will say. And then he presents two questions. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? 
Paul's first word in response to both of those questions might surprise us. It's the word fool. Now at first glance, we look at those two questions and we, they seem harmless, they seem reasonable. But Paul knew the errors that the Corinthian saints were being tempted to embrace. He knew what was behind such questions in the hearts of some of those saints. And Paul was fiercely, fiercely protective of God's redeemed ones. So he doesn't mince words. He says, fool! I can't help thinking here of the Sadducees in Matthew 22 who came to Jesus with their carefully crafted trick question. Bear in mind, the Sadducees didn't believe that resurrection existed. And they came to Jesus and they told him about a woman. They gave him a parable, a story about a woman who had been widowed seven times. And their question was, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? And they were waiting for Jesus to fall all over himself trying to answer that. And Jesus' answer was not diplomatic. He said, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then he, he said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees uh, didn't know what to do with that, of course. Paul, uh, like Jesus, has, he has no tolerance for Christians holding on to false notions when it comes to a truth as central to our living hope as the nature of our coming resurrection. Now I suspect that the heart behind the two questions that, that Paul detected here was something along these lines. How can anyone be expected to believe that a dead, decayed body will be made alive again? What kind of body would it have? Someone in our day who's watched a few too many zombie apocalypse movies might, might hear the word resurrection and say, raised from the dead? No, nah, I don't think so. Just leave me in the ground, please. Paul does not back down when he encounters badly misguided Christians. Okay, He, he goes... He goes full throttle after the, the errors to bring us back. Armed with the Old Testament Scriptures, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and with his own personal encounter of the resurrected Christ, Paul takes on the, these questions by giving us the most fully developed explanation anywhere in the Bible of what will happen to the body of every believer in Christ who dies. And his answer in a nutshell is that our resurrection will be like Christ's resurrection. At the heart of his explanation of the resurrection uh, that awaits us is the fact that our, our mortal, curse-infected bodies will not be done away with. They will be redeemed and transformed just as, as Christ's body was. Paul begins by presenting an analogy, a word picture of a seed that sprouts only if it's buried in the ground. If you stick it in, if you keep it in the package in a drawer, nothing happens. You have to put it in the ground, bury it, and then it, then it sprouts. And in verse 36, he says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. His point is that our mortal bodies must die in order to be resurrected to newness and fullness of life. 
The only exception to that requirement will be for the very small subset of Christendom who is still standing when Jesus comes back. They will be transformed and raised only after those who have died in Christ have first been raised. And if you read 1 Thessalonians 4, it looks like that will all happen in pretty close, fast succession. But here, Paul's attention is focused on what happens to believers who die before the return of Jesus. Now, some critics are, are quick to discard Paul's analogy by pointing out that a seed, scientifically, a seed does not in fact die when you put it in the ground and then come back to life when you plant it. But this is, this is phenomenological language. It's, it's presented in terms of how things appear. And guys, if we apply a, a, a ridiculous standard of modern Western scientific specificity to, to the language of the Bible, we're going to come to all kinds of bizarre conclusions. And you know what? We don't even do it in our own lives. If you say the sunrise this morning was at 6.50, you're not being scientifically accurate, but everybody knows what you mean. Okay? It, 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 that's phenomenological language. It's as things appear to be. Paul's word picture is of a seed that appears to be lifeless. It doesn't do anything until it's sown by being buried in the ground, and only then does it sprout, sprout forth full of life. In verses 37 and 38, Paul continues with the seed analogy to make three additional points about our resurrection. He says, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. And he says, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, he gives a body of its own. Now, there's, those points are all important. Every believer's <coughs> resurrection body is radically different than the body that died. And every believer's resurrection body is given, designed by God just as he wills. And then every believer's resurrection body is as unique to that individual believer as his unredeemed body was. I don't know if we'll have fingerprints, I don't know, but, but we'll each be different. That's what he says. He says, to each of the seeds a body of its own. I'm going to kind of go in reverse order because Paul's going to expand a lot on the first of those points, so I'll come back to it in a second. But every believer's resurrection body is as unique to that individual believer as his unredeemed body was. The kingdom of God is not going to be filled with a bunch of identical, identical physical clones. <laughs> and that, we should expect that. That's in keeping with the pattern that we have right here and now when it comes to the resurrection life that we already possess in Christ, right? The new life that God already imparted to every soul that has been saved through faith and Jesus Christ did not erase our unique individual identities. Instead, it redeemed and transformed those identities according to God's gracious will. We have been, Ephesians 4, we have been recreated in holiness and righteousness of the truth in the likeness of Christ. In the same way, the resurrection life of the body will not do away with our physical bodies, nor will it make them all the same. It will redeem each person's body and, tr and transform each body just as God wills. In verse 37, Paul says, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. He's setting the stage here for 
the marvelous truth that's going to fill most of the rest of this chapter. The plant that springs forth from a germinated seed is dramatically different from the seed. The one that Jesus pointed out was a mustard seed, a little tiny, tiny seed, and it turns into this great big tree. If you didn't get a look at the seed before it was planted, you'd have no way of knowing that that's what that tree looked like before, before it sprouted, right? In verses 39 to 41, Paul develops this truth further through two more analogies. He says, in effect, that if we behold such dramatically different kinds of flesh in the great variety of creatures that we find even in this unredeemed creation, and if the earthly bodies that we see down here differ so dramatically from the appearance of the heavenly bodies, the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars, why would we expect that our redeemed bodies, freed from every residue of sin and of the curse of death, would be like the ones that we have now. But Paul's just getting started in setting before us what will make our resurrection bodies so wonderfully different than the earthly tents that we inhabit right now. Verse 42 is the hinge in this passage. Everything after verse 42 is not word pictures, but direct and powerful assertions about the radical transformation in our bodies and in our experience that will be true of us when we receive the redeemed resurrection bodies that God will soon give to every believer from every age of mankind. Now I should point out here that it will not be only believers who will be physically raised from the dead. Many people think that that's the way this works. Just the believers are raised. In John 5, Jesus speaks of two resurrections, a resurrection unto eternal life and a resurrection unto judgment. Revelation chapter 20 likewise speaks of a first resurrection whose participants will not experience what he calls the second death. That death is eternal judgment. That same chapter then goes on, and at the end it describes a second resurrection, and that one's not pretty. Death and Hades will be raised. Everybody who was not part of the first resurrection will be raised from the dead, and something terrifying will happen to them. Jesus said in John 3.18 that those who have not put their faith in Him have been judged already. That's how we all start out, judged. Whoever persists in that unbelief until his or her dying breath will not simply cease to exist when his body dies. The soul of every man is eternal, and here's the big news for some, so is the body. So is the body of every man. Those who die rejecting Jesus will be raised bodily from the grave, and they will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment spoken of at the end of Revelation 20, that judgment will be the very last event that precedes the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Instead of being seen as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, purely by His grace through faith in Christ, all those who stand before Christ to be judged in that judgment will be judged according to their deeds. 
Books will be opened, God's record of what they have done during their earthly life. And friends, all of them will fail the test miserably and will be cast into the lake of fire. You don't have to like that for it to be true. God says it. That is the second death, eternal judgment. That judgment does not end. But Paul is not talking here in 1 Corinthians 15 about what happens to unbelievers. He is focused entirely on what will soon happen to everyone who trusts in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verses 42 to 49, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor and glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, he says. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And the word became is in italics there. I scratched it out because Christ is a life-giving spirit from eternity to eternity. However, the spiritual is not first, he says, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, Adam's image, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, Christ's image. Beloved, these are the precious and magnificent promises of the God who cannot lie. These are His promises to His redeemed children. These bodies are that are destined to death will not remain dead. They will be raised imperishable, never subject to death again. I said last week the word mortal means destined to die. Will be raised immortal. These corrupt bodies that bear so pervasively the dishonor of sin and the curse will be raised in honor and glory. These bodies that are so fragile and riddled with weakness will be raised in power. Every one of our natural bodies will be raised a spiritual body, pure and holy in the sight of God. And these earthy bodies, as Paul describes them, will be raised heavenly. These bodies that in the likeness of Adam were created by God from the dust of the earth into which he breathed the breath of life will be transformed in the likeness of the second Adam, Christ, the last Adam. And at that point, our bodies will have a dramatic change of source. They will no longer be from the earth. They will be from heaven. And it's exceedingly important, if, if you haven't heard anything else I've said, hear this. It's exceedingly important to recognize that Paul does not contrast the physical with the spiritual. He does not contrast the physical with the spiritual. He does not say our physical bodies will be raised spiritual bodies. In fact, in both of those phrases in this passage, natural body or in, in the phrase natural body and spiritual body, the word body, the Greek word soma, 
from which we get the English word somatic, it refers to the corporeal, tangible, physical aspect of a creature, of, a, of an entity. Okay? The word means physical. The contrast is between natural bodies and spiritual bodies. This is so very important, and it eliminates a lot of heresy, some of which has been propagated in the name of Christianity. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. We are the latter fruits. Our resurrection is in the likeness of His. The resurrected Jesus who was seen and touched by His disciples was not and is not a free-floating, full-torso, vaporous apparition. Apologies to Ghostbusters. Jesus took on our humanness, including our mortal flesh. When he came from heaven to earth the first time, on the third day, he was bodily, physically raised from the grave. That's why the grave was empty. His body was transformed not from physical to spiritual, but from natural. From natural to spiritual. His body was from, transformed from mortal, subject to death, to immortal never to die again. His body was transformed from common and temporary to holy and everlasting. But beloved, his body didn't stop being physical. The incarnation of Jesus is forever. In John 20, you guys know the story, verses 20 to 24, Thomas, a disciple of Jesus, missed out on the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus to a room full of disciples. Thomas the doubter, he was unconvinced by the, the testimony of his friends about what they had seen. So he said to the others, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them and Jesus came through the doors that were shut and stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. That condescension of Jesus was so that we would all understand that his resurrected body was physical and touchable, just like ours will be. The reason I know that it's a condescension is because the next thing he said, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. The incarnation of Jesus is forever, and so is ours. God made us as physical and spiritual beings. Both aspects of that were, were killed by our sin. And, and for every one of you who sits here today, the spiritual component of that has been redeemed. Your soul has been redeemed. Okay? But your body is not. Read Romans 8. Your body has not been redeemed. Still under the curse. Still destined to die. But when you die, that's not the end of the story for your body. Like the resurrection body of Jesus, our res resurrection bodies will not be flesh and blood as we know them now. 
Not quite sure how that's going to work, but it doesn't mean they won't be physical. They will be physical bodies made new and made perfect forever. Just, by the way, just as will be true of the new heavens and the new earth. The physical will not be done away with. It will be redeemed. Please listen as I read verses 50 to 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul speaks of the the eternal state of all things as the gathering together into one of all things, the things in the heavens and the things on earth. One of the most marvelous truths about the glorious resurrection that awaits us and about the place that we will inhabit together with Christ and His redeemed is that the physical and the spiritual will no longer be at enmity with each other. They will be reconciled in full, made perfectly one in Christ forever. All of the struggle that we experience now, all of the opposition from creation that is part of the curse is all going to be gone. And creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the glory, into the glory of the children of God. I can only imagine. In verses 54 to 57, Paul says that by our resurrection, by raising us from the dead, our Savior causes death to be swallowed up in victory. Verse 54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will, <laughs> will have put on immortality, then, <clears throat> then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We don't find it hard to understand why Paul would say the sting of death is sin. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, the wages of sin, what each human being has earned because of our sinful rebellion against God is death. What makes physical death the greatest threat that an unsaved person faces during this earthly life is the judgment that comes after it. There will be no do-overs. There's no purgatory. There is no reincarnation. Good karma isn't going to cut it. Hebrews 9.27, it says it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. And either Jesus bears that judgment for you or you bear it for yourself. For every person who dies in unbelief, 
What follows death, the death of the physical body is uncompromising judgment that will bring about eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power in the place called the lake of fire and brimstone. We don't have to like that for it to be true. God doesn't grade on the curve, beloved. I hope Wednesday night I hope Wednesday night, and I ask you to pray for this, that that would be clear through this vessel. God doesn't grade on the curve. Every corrupted contrivance of men that's called religion presumes that we can make ourselves good enough to merit a good outcome to merit well-being. And the one true revelation of God to man says that's never going to happen. You will never merit the favor of God. And all you will ever merit is what you have earned by your sin and that is eternal condemnation. And the beautiful, what, what makes me, what fills me with gratitude is that I didn't get what I deserved. I got the exact opposite. All because of, of the exceeding love of God. We find the second part of 1 Corinthians 15.56 hard, a little harder to understand than the first part. The first part, the sting of death is sin. The second part, the power of sin is the law. In Romans 7, Paul pulls back the curtain and explains the counterintuitive impact of God's law on sinners. And the best way I know to distill this is what he says there in Romans 7 is that the sin nature of unredeemed man responds to God's law pretty much the way a child responds to a wet paint sign that's pointing to a wall. Instead of avoiding the wall that he likely would never have paid any attention to had not he seen, seen the sign, that child is enticed to do exactly what the sign commands him not to do. Touch the wall. In the same way, even though the law of God is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, as Paul says in Romans 7.12, our sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceives us and through it kills us. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he, when he says the power of sin is the law. At the end of that same chapter, Romans 7, listen to the connection here. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He immediately answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, right after he says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only victory that exists to overcome the curse of death that our sin brought upon us from the, from the hand of God is the victory that God Himself accomplished by sending His, His holy, righteous, sinless Son to bear the entire guilt and penalty of our sin upon Himself in our place. 
at the cross. In verse 54, Paul says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He says the saying that is written. You know where that was written? One of the most magnificent passages in the Old Testament. They're all magnificent, but this one just blows me away. Isaiah 25, 6-9. Listen to this. It's a prophecy written 700 years before Christ. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from, from face all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And then, and then the last two verses, last verse, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. That's talking about Jesus. When He returns and raises all whom He has redeemed by His blood, the curse of death will be swallowed up for all time. The final verse of this great chapter, uh, verse 58, in that verse, Paul circles back to the so what. He talked about the ramifications of our resurrection a little earlier, but in this entire 24-verse passage from from verse 35 to 58 that we read this morning, there's only one command. 24 verses, one command. And that's the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your toil, is not in vain in the Lord. In the opening verses of chapter 15, Paul laid out for us with crystal clarity the indispensable essence of the gospel message in the form of four that clauses. That the long-promised Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to many, many witnesses, including Paul himself. Paul then declared without compromise that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Empty. Useless. But then in verse 20, he dispensed with that possibility by saying, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He knew that to be true. He met the resurrected Christ. And so did many others. Christ's resurrection perfectly vindicates our faith. Our faith is not in vain. Now Paul concludes this magnificent chapter by saying that the fact of Christ's resurrection and of our resurrection in His likeness ensures that our toil, our hard labor is what that word means, this side of glory is not in vain in the Lord. Until you and I are raised as He was raised, we wait with eager anticipation. But beloved, we do not wait on the sidelines. We wait on the front lines we wait knowing that our faith is not in vain, but is grounded in the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. We wait knowing that our labor as His redeemed ambassadors on earth is not in vain. That even though we wake up every day behind enemy lines, 
even though we increasingly in this culture are becoming the enemy of the culture, even though we live in a world that doesn't even believe that truth exists, and we get to fight that battle continually, the outcome of the war was already settled at the cross of Jesus. We are on the side of the victor. His resurrection promise to us changes everything, <laughs> even now. This chapter tells us that there's a third thing that's not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. And the reason that that's true is verse 10 from an earlier passage in this chapter. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The reason our faith in Jesus is not in vain and the reason that our labor in, in Christ is not in vain is because the grace of God toward us is absolutely effective. It is not in vain. All of this is His doing, not ours. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, Paul said, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> you and I seek the purity of these jars of clay because in them we bear the Holy Spirit and we display God to the world. We don't squander our lives trying to pretty up the seed or, or to protect the seed. This body is not the one that we will inhabit for eternity. If we try to keep the seed sealed up in a package, stuck in a drawer, <laughs> it's just going to sit there useless. You and I must embrace the destiny of this earthly vessel. It has to get planted in the ground in order to flourish, in order to, in order to sprout up in, in newness of life so that we may share in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, doesn't matter what happens, how your body dies. Doesn't matter if it's worm food or fish food or ash. What matters, beloved, what matters is that the God who made you is going to transform this earthly vessel into a perfect, redeemed, heavenly vessel. And you will dwell with Him in that body for all eternity. The death of these earthly bodies is no threat to us. You and I have been freed from the slavery to fear of death that defines and consumes those who do not know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. We don't cling to the temporary. We hold fast to the eternal. Death is a constant reminder of the curse. Death is the last enemy of man. But our Lord's victory over that enemy was already secured at the cross. Now, we're not supposed to hasten the death of these physical bodies because we want to press on in usefulness to God as long as He sees fit. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Philippians 1. But when that usefulness is finished, we know that the death of these bodies is just going to be a bump in the road. Because you and I who believe in Jesus have already crossed over out of death into eternal life. And nothing's going to change that. 
Therefore, 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God has told us what is vain and vaporous and what is not. Because His grace is not in vain, our faith is not in vain, and our work is not in vain. There's a very simple way for you to determine what else in your life is either vain or valuable. It's very simple. One question. Will it last? 10,000 years from now, will it still be around? And if it won't, then the only value that it has is its impact on that which will. In C.T. Studd's old poem, he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God's constant encouragement to us through Paul and beloved, our constant encouragement that we should be, that we should be holding each other to constantly is, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we live that way? 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, gird up your minds for action. That's battle terminology. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, don't look around. Look forward and look upward, fixing your eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. His grace toward you will never be in vain. Loving Father, because our crucified Savior lives, we know that we will live forever with you and with all the saints. He will finish what his death and resurrection has fully secured. He will soon come again in glory to lay hold of all whom he has redeemed by his precious blood. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We'll be taken up, transformed into His likeness to dwell together with the triune God and His children in the glorious place that He has prepared for us. The tabernacle of God will be among men. You will be our God and we will be Your people forever. Until we're done with these dying bodies, Lord, make us useful filled with gratitude for your gift and filled with resurrection life and power to accomplish your will on earth. As we labor, we say with eager anticipation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.